This edition of The Recap was first broadcast on the 19th of December 2015 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Ben Ryland and welcome to The Recap, bringing you the highlights from the past week's live news and analysis programs broadcast right here on Monocle 24. Over the next half hour, we'll bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from The Globalist, The Briefing, The Dory House and The Monocle Daily. Coming up, women vote and run in the Saudi elections for the first time. We'll have analysis. This is an opportunity for journalists to run lines about how women going to the polling stations in Saudi Arabia said they'd they'd never see this day. Fine. I mean, that's a great individual and a very minor victory, but it doesn't go beyond that. Then India is to buy its first bullet train from Japan that will reduce the journey between Mumbai and Ahmedabad from eight hours to just two We'll also revisit our week-long series on the art of diplomatic gift-giving. All that coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Recap with me, Ben Ryland. In Saudi Arabia, women voted and ran in elections last weekend for the first time in the country's history. Results indicate that around 17 women have been elected, and though they represent just 1% of the council seats up for grabs, it's still seen as a step forward. Daniela Paled, editor at the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Robert Fox, defence editor for London's Evening Standard newspaper, discussed this when they met Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck on Monday's edition of Midori House. Well, I think Daniela actually Well, you just said you, were, you used to cover women's rights. I was giving you a chance no, to no, kind of bang the, the drum. Shall I speak for my gender? Yeah, you speak, let's, let's keep this gender-based. You go don't, first. Don't take any patronising nonsense from two males. Right. Well, no, 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 no. Feel free to weigh in at any time. Uh, it's historic in the sense that it's the first time something has happened. It's not historic in any meaningful way because it means nothing. And I was thinking about this before we came on out of how I could possibly think of something positive to say about it because I don't want to denigrate the efforts of the campaigners that have been working for this on the ground but I see it as having zero significance somewhere an international branding agency is rubbing its hands thinking oh what great we've got a good news story to run about Saudi Arabia similarly did you know that Saudi Arabia has just got a place in the Guinness World Record for getting the largest number well, of the, women well, there's, together. There's a strange thing. In the Guinness Book of World Records, something about Saudi Arabia. That's, well, that yes. shouldn't be, that's <laughs> not the right place. A, a drinks brand celebrating Saudi Arabia. Well, anyway. quite. They're branching out. You know, they've, they've, gotten, they've got together the largest group of women to raise awareness about breast cancer. Now, again, that is just about as meaningful, really. It's complete lip service. This is an opportunity for journalists to run lines about how women going to the polling stations in Saudi Arabia said they'd they'd never see this day. Fine. I mean, that's a great individual and a very minor victory, but it doesn't go beyond that. Even in other autocratic regimes, you know, men and women have equal rights to vote for the same candidate without any other option. And the strange thing, I think, for Saudi authorities, you'd think that the important thing was that your 
public was signed up to what you're doing. And the reason you can judge that that's not the case, you know, here in London, only a couple of weeks ago, we had an event here, met a young woman who's here studying medicine, Saudi, she's here in her kind of jeans and t-shirt and her kind of hip jacket, no hint of any kind of headscarf even. Yeah, and she's just being a, you know, a young, cool Londoner when she moves here. When she goes back home, she adopts what's expected of her. Now, she's not trying to you know, rock the system. But what's interesting is a lot of Saudi women are just not invested in the whole scheme. They know that the minute even they go to Dubai, they kind of dress in a different way. The rules being placed at home, they don't run that deep in many people who live in the country. And that's, the, in the end, what you have to worry about the theocracies is they don't have a chance of really surviving if people don't believe what they're talking about. Well, I don't know about the long-term survival, and I do think that the prospects are very, very difficult because I agree with both of you. This is coming from a very, very low base indeed. I mean, the terms in which they were allowed to campaign, they were not allowed to campaign in front of men in certain circumstances, and in the terms in which when they get to their local authorities, local councils, they're allowed to deliberate and debate. They're not in the same chamber with men and so on and so forth. And they were just picking out from the BBC's report an astonishing remark by King Abdullah. I haven't forgotten that King Abdullah has died, but he was the king that enabled this opening the franchise very, very tiny crack to women. He said he was doing it because women have demonstrated positions that expressed correct opinions and advice. It is so far from real democracy. And I think actually you have put your finger on it. Young women, young Saudi women, I deal with them in think tanks and so on. We're absolutely equal. They're brilliant, multilingual. They're so experienced. They're terrific contributors in the West, and they are so stifled and restricted when they go back to Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi particularly, and in some of the other Gulf Cooperation Councils, it's the education gap. Young women are becoming highly educated, but the education has no traction at all. Daniela Paled and Robert Fox there speaking to Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck on Monday's edition of Midori House. And of course, you can revisit that program over at monocle.com. This is the recap on Monocle 24. Now, once upon a time, the main pitfall for most parents on Christmas morning was failure to ensure a healthy stash of batteries hidden somewhere in the house. But oh, how things change. This Christmas, drones are expected to be one of the most popular gifts. But new rules by the FAA in the US mean that even the casual Christmas present variety will need to be registered. The tightening comes amid reports of about 100 drones flying dangerously close to manned aircraft every month. Monocle's transport correspondent Tristan McAllister told more to our Tom Edwards on Tuesday's edition of The Briefing. I think in a way, what we've seen at least in the U.S. is that for a long time, the FAA and the transportation authorities there have have been pushed in this direction of you need to make some sort of call on regulating this because it has turned into what you could call an epidemic in ways. We see at your standard electronic store, at drug stores, whatever, even in New York City on street corners, whatever, there are just little boxes of drones sitting in store windows waiting to be purchased. But aren't there two things which are mixed together here, which are, I mean, I can't believe that you're kind of corner in New York City selling a you know a little drone in a box for $50 or whatever can that seriously pose a threat to civil aircraft or are we looking at this thing where they're conflating different risks and coming out with what therefore must be a slightly draconian solution it's actually a very good question and frankly yes it is a risk I do not want 
as a passenger on a jet flying 200 miles an hour to come into contact with anything, be it a bird, whatever else, a drone. So I would say... Is it it that dangerous, though? I mean, I I know it's hard to equate different things, and there are some very big, these are pseudo-military ones, which are huge and quite complex crafts, basically. But those small, like you said, the the drugstore drone, I mean, that's not going to take an A380 into any difficulty, is it? No, it's not. But I think the concern is when it comes to commercial aviation, you want to eliminate as much risk Mm. as possible. And the biggest issue here is that the people operating these machines, these drones are not aware of the rules of the sky. They have not been trained as pilots, and that's a bigger issue. If everybody operating a drone were trained as a pilot and understood the rules and contacted the control tower as these new mandates will require them to do to fly a drone within five miles of an airport, if they knew to do that and had the radio and the infrastructure and whatever it took to be able to get the authority and the approval to operate this drone near airplanes, different story. But what they're saying here and in the language here is... This is saying that anyone who flies a drone has to be at least 13 years old, and at 13, they can register for $5 with the government, and they go into a database, and the government knows these people are registered to operate the drone, and with the registration comes a little rule book, essentially like a mini sort of Cliff's Notes to being a pilot, (laughs) if you will. But is that then enough, Tristan? Because I guess people will say, okay, well, let's follow that logic that people need to be aware of the risks and somehow educated better. I mean, a 13-year-old, okay, they've got to give their name, their address, and an email address. <laughs> I mean, does that really change anything, potentially? <laughs> I mean, I, here's the thing. I think what it does is it creates an awareness around this, and that's the bigger issue. It is the Christmas season, which is not... You, you did mention <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, they're saying that over the holidays in the U.S., 400,000 drones will be sold. That's a lot of little that's things an incredible number, in the air. Yeah. 1.6 million last or in 2015 alone. Mm. That's a lot, and you know the number will keep getting bigger. I think this is a concern. There have been a lot of close calls with passenger jets near airports. And this is really just an awareness issue. That's mm. that's the thing. And it's, it is in everybody's hands now. So any drone over a certain weight, a very, very, very low weight, will be required to get this certification. I don't have huge problems with it personally. I think it's it's what needed to happen. Of course, there are model aircraft advocates. There are many in the U.S. Don't look at me like that, Tristan. <laughs> who say, who say um, this is an affront to their freedom as, 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 um, as model aircraft flyers. But I think, you know, this is the new world that we live in. Model air, Pragmatism you know, has maybe prevails. Right. And many model aircraft that fly have been around for a long time. But those that can sit and hover and, and surveil, I mean, that's the other side to this, mm-hmm. too. It's not just about aircraft. Or interfering with commercial aircraft, but you know, there's a lot of privacy issues that, that go into this as well. So I think you know this narrative is now moving toward this idea that it should be regulated, that pe- there should be some framework for people to work within, and sh- it should be said too: five dollars, just sign up online. That's not a really high bar. No, that was a highlight from Tuesday's edition of the briefing here on Monocle Twenty Four with our transport correspondent Tristan McAllister and Tom Edwards. We'll stick to the theme of transport now and continue with an ambitious infrastructure project in India. Indian Railways employs 1.3 million people and in an average year records a squeak over 8 billion passenger journeys. However, it's not a fast way to travel a big country. That's about to change soon. India is to buy its first bullet train from Japan, which will reduce the journey between Mumbai and Ahmedabad from 8 hours to just 2 
That was a topic for discussion on Tuesday's edition of Midori House when Andrew Muller was joined by Tristan McAllister again and our Asia editor-at-large, Kenji Hall. For a country like that that is looking to sort of present itself as a modern place to invest and have serious infrastructure and serious business, it's very important for a move like this, getting people to and from efficiently in a fast way. The thing about these high-speed trains, though, I wonder if they're necessarily going to be trains that people can cram into like they cram into the train. I was going to say, the, the people sitting on the <laughs> roof will be hanging on pretty tight as well. Right. <laughs> right, so you have to wonder. I mean, a capacity might still be an issue, but I think any news on this front is probably good news for India. It's easy to see how a network of high-speed rail could work in India and what it could do for India. The thing that makes me curious, and I'll put this to you, Kenji, the the first Shinkansen left the station in 1964. Why hasn't Japan sold these things all over the world for the last half a century? And that's a very good question because Japan is asking itself the same thing. I think we've only seen one case in which Japan has exported the technology, and that's to Taiwan, and that was in the mid-2000s. The problem mainly is cost, really. I mean, Japan has what's called exclusive rail, which means that the Shinkansen runs on its own track. It never sort of comes up on the same track with freight trains or commuter trains. It never comes across a railroad crossing. Uh, So there's really a low risk of the kinds of collisions that you see in some other countries. At the same time, that's costly to build. And I think the prospect of doing that, you know, I mean, this deal itself costs 15 billion US dollars. Um, That's a sizable chunk of change. It's a huge, huge win for Japan because we saw Japan lose out to China and Indonesia uh, deal back in October. And Kenji, just to follow on from that, when you talk about the Japanese and the cost, of course, developing things like this technology, it's very, very sort of futury for a lot of the world, even though they've done it for years. Putting this in place would cost a lot of money. In the U.S., for instance, the Japanese government, Shinzo Abe, they've gone to the U.S. government and they have said, they've gone to the train authorities and said, we will actually subsidize a bit of your rail. We will put in the first corridor between, say, Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, Maryland, if you guys do the rest. We'll invest the billions of dollars it takes to do this just to get you started. So that seems to be how serious the Japanese are to do this. Oh, absolutely. They're willing to put a lot of cash into this. At the same time, I think the Japanese have learned their lesson. They previously thought, you know, if we build it, they will come. Our flawless safety record (laughs) speaks for itself. You know, the great technology, the extensive network, the leaps and bounds that the Japanese economy has benefited from the extensive rail network, that will all speak for itself. But it hasn't really. Tristan, final thought on this from you. Should countries, big countries like India, like Turkey, like as we're forever saying on Monocle 24, the United States, look seriously at high-speed rail as a passenger alternative to flight? I'll be frank. I think it's more likely to happen in a place like India than it is in the U.S. I think in terms of these cases in the U.S., we call it eminent domain, where you can just, the government literally has the authority to walk in, take property away, pay a market price for it, and say, we're going to devote this to infrastructure. That's very hard to do in the U.S. It's very costly, very time-consuming. When it comes to the developing world, where it seems to be a pretty general will to participate in this global economy and build strong infrastructure, it seems these things happen a lot faster. I remember that Thailand was trying to do this a few years ago. It kind of went on to the rocks a bit, but still, they had planned to do a massive high-speed infrastructure setup train included, and they said they were going to do it within five years. These countries can do it if there's the will, and that's really what's key. That was Tuesday's edition of Midori House, when Andrew Muller was joined by Tristan McAllister again, and our Asia editor-at-large, Kenji Hall. You're listening to The Recap here on Monocle 24. Coming up soon, we'll unravel the secret world of diplomatic gift-giving. 
Meet the Writers is the show in which we have a chance to get intimate with some exciting authors. Airing at 1500 every Saturday and available as a podcast thereafter, it's an in-depth discussion about the life and work of a different writer every week. With me, Georgina Godwin, on Monocle 24. This is The Recap on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Rylan. Now, with Christmas being so close, all this week on Monocle 24, we've been talking about diplomatic gifts. Now, government officials are usually reluctant to share any information about how presents are decided. That's why Monocle's Marcus Hippie invited our regular contributor and former ambassador to Belarus, Uruguay and North Korea, John Everard, here to Midori House, to tell us about what happens behind the scenes and why there is so much secrecy surrounding diplomatic gift-giving. Diplomatic gifts are so sensitive. If you are able to interpret a gift that's given to you uh, from an ambassador or, more importantly, even from a senior visiting politician, you can usually work out what importance that person attaches to you and to your country, which is fine if you discover that the kind of gift they've given you is the one they gift to their their most respected countries, the ones they attach the most importance to. It, of course, causes a certain amount of dismay if you discover that you've been given a gift that is normally associated with a lesser country and one to which they, they, they don't think is so important. Could you try to give us an idea of how we should look at different diplomatic gifts. What things should you focus on if you want to figure out if that gift is actually something that's been meant to be important or less important? One of the big giveaways is whether the gift is the kind of thing that you could just go to a shop and buy for however much money. If it is, then probably it's a kind of lower-ranking gift. If the gift, however, has been specially made, specially crafted, or in some way personalised, then somebody has gone to time, effort and trouble, and it means that they think that they really value their relationship with you. So, some examples. I'm a bit hesitant to name names for reasons I think I've just explained, but there was an occasion where, in the last days of the Cold War, uh, the United States was trying to make a really big impression on a senior Soviet leader, discovered that he was a great fan of 1920 is American jazz and sent scouts out searching high and low for a particular set of jazz records that of course had no particular monetary value but were actually very rare and difficult to get hold of and had them signed by the jazz musicians concerned who by that stage were rather old men but still had them signed immediate hit, terrific impact, and the fact that the Americans did this only actually came out uh, some 20 years after the event. Another one from history, we all know the English expression, a white elephant, meaning something that you don't really want. That actually came from a practice in giving diplomatic gifts. In the 19th century, the Indian princes, if they really respected you, they would find a white elephant, of course white elephants are quite rare, and are sacred, and present that to you, which was a terrific honour. You couldn't possibly refuse this, but of course you were then lumped with an elephant you had to feed and look after until the, the poor beast passed away. Well, considering what you just said about bespoke gifts, I'm wondering what should we think about David Cameron, for example, having received a DVD box from Barack Obama, or what should we think about Great Britain once having given China Margaret Thatcher biography? 
I think we would need to know what actually is in that DVD box, whether it was actually in some way personalised and whether there were special DVDs. Uh, you'll notice that none of that has been made public. Perhaps, who knows? No, Debbie Cameron hasn't yet opened it. We'll see. The gifts to China will have been quite carefully chosen. And China is a difficult case because China has a disconcerting habit of telling the world what gifts it has got, which isn't always what the donor actually intended. But there we are. That's the Chinese for you. And I think we just got part of the picture of what happened, for example, in President Xi's visit to London uh, just recently. What President Xi was given, of course, it was all over the papers. It would be fascinating to know what everybody else in his party got and in what order. Because, of course, it's not just the top man who gets gifts. Everybody does. Usually, even down to the interpreters, who will at least get a kind of personalised biro or something to take away and show that they were part of the team. In London, there is a system that if you are given a gift above a certain value, it has to be given to the department, usually the foreign office, uh, that you represent, not to you personally, which is fair enough. And you can see that this is meant to prevent bribery, corruption and other nasty things. The problem is that if you are working in a department which deals with cultures where gift giving is part of the norm, you quickly run out of office space. And every now and then, they have a great clear out of strange Ashanti spears, Arab teapots, full coffee sets, and things that have been sitting on top of cupboards or you know behind doors or whatever for years. And these are usually presented to various bits of the British Museum system. So that when you go around the British Museum and you see anonymous donor, very often Often, that is an ex-diplomatic gift that we in the Foreign Office have shunted on at some stage. And does it ever happen that there is something that the state wants to get rid of but no museum will accept? What do you do with those gifts no one actually wants to take? Yeah, they are a real headache. If that happens, sometimes you can actually sell them quietly, discreetly. Where? eBay is a wonderful institution. Um, but... Quite often, they just end up in government warehouses. Fortunately, the British government, and I'm sure this goes for other Western governments too, has, through history, acquired sort of underground warehouses which are quite capacious, which are usually not open to the public. But if you can go in, you discover the most extraordinary things. Gifts going way, way, way back. I've seen some, including from old Indian princes of the century before last, that nobody could quite get rid of, and they just sit there. What is meant to be done with those gifts, by the way? I could imagine that when you look at many world leaders who have been in the that position for decades even, there must be so many presents they have to keep somewhere. And this is a real problem. As we say in the trade, gifts are delicate to give and delicate to receive. Of course, if somebody gives you a gift, you cannot possibly turn it down. It's a diplomatic gift. It's a gesture of affection, respect, and so on and so forth. You have to accept it. And you then have to find a way of storing it. For how long and where? I mean, the British government uh, has got all kinds of complex rules about what you do with these. I can, I can talk about them if you like. Uh, but my favourite example is that of the Kim dynasty of North Korea, who decided decided that because they are demigods, everything given to them must be sacred. And they've created a museum, a great big museum, right up in the north of the country, where every last tiny little gift that they receive is lovingly stored and nobody's allowed to touch them. This has strange consequences because just after the Berlin Wall fell, somebody, I forget now who it was, gave Kim Il-sung a piece of the fallen Berlin Wall, which of course, because it was given to the leader, has to be displayed in the museum. But, of course, anybody who knows the first thing about European history understands immediately what that gift really means. Another example, Prince Charles, who, of course, as a member of the royal family, receives enormous numbers of gifts. 
was caught disposing of them, uh, not selling them, as I recall, but giving a lot of them away, which, of course, he has to do. The man doesn't run a warehouse for all these gifts, and he can't do a Kim-style museum. I gather that the system was that he would take the the gift with a big smile, hold on to it for as long as he thought he needed to, just for the memory to fade, rather, and then he had a team of people getting rid of these things. And, of course, when people discovered this, a lot of the original donors got really quite upset that their gifts, over which they'd probably given some thought, were just being, being, being taken away and given to lesser mortals. But what else do you do? That was the former ambassador, John Everard, there, talking to our own Marcus Hippie on Thursday's edition of The Globalist. And finally on today's show, we'll stick with that theme and revisit Friday's edition of The Globalist. Georgina Godwin spoke to Russian expert Donald Rayfield, emeritus professor at Queen Mary University here in London, to look at the diplomatic presence Russia has given to world leaders in recent years. And this very amusing chat stems from animals to vegetables. Hillary Clinton presented this computer button and in English it said reset. But the Russian translation was a mistake and it said overload. (laughs) And so I think that may be one reason why the relations never really did get to reset. Now, over the centuries, Russia's received some incredible gifts. And I think there was a temporary exhibition at the Hermitage State Museum last Christmas. It showcased gifts from, I think, the last 300 years, decorative weapons, all sorts of things. That was Russian rulers from Peter I all the way up to Nicholas II. But presumably, gifts of equal value were going the other way along the same time period. Yes. I mean, originally, Russian Tsars used to give foreign potentates gifts of hunting falcons. And diplomats hated delivering these because you had to find fresh meat every day for your journey to this distant kingdom. And very often the falcon would arrive dead or sick and the recipient would regard it as an insult (laughs) and not a present. Or they sent sable furs, which were very valuable, but then the diplomats tended to get robbed on their journeys. So those have finally gone out of fashion. But generally, Putin has been uh, sort of either weapons or animals He gave al-Sisi in Egypt a Kalashnikov, not a new one, a sort of vintage one. And then he gave the president of Tajikistan a sniper rifle, which I think in Tajikistan is probably useful if you're you're president. Otherwise, animals. There's a lot of exchange of animals. Venezuela, Chavez got a Moscow Terrier, which is not a nice dog. It was a dog bred by the secret police to capture escaping prisoners or people crossing the border. And then... Putin got a present from Japan, from the province of Akita, of an Akita fighting dog, and he sent back the only cat that fights to protect its owner, that's Siberian cat. So these are fairly typical exchanges. Other things are sort of rather weird. Putin, as you probably know, was a very good friend of Berlusconi's. And when he met Berlusconi last, he gave him a book about Berlusconi in Russian, <laughs> and a Russian sports team jacket. So these things are rather odd. On the other hand, Putin gets rather strange presents from people you'd think were his allies. Lukashenko in Belarus gave him an exact copy of a 17th century cannon, complete with gunpowder and cannonballs. And then Moldova gave Putin a very strange present for his 50th birthday. Uh, The president Varonian gave him a crocodile. And when Putin looked a bit puzzled, he said, the reason I'm giving you a crocodile is it's the only animal that can't walk backwards. And then Baroni had another gift. And he said, look, we've just published a book, The 100 Best Putin Jokes. <laughs> so these things work two ways. 
Fantastic. What's Russia's definition or the version of giving someone a pair of old socks? Well, something very similar happens. The potato diplomacy was remarkable when Kerry gave the foreign minister Lavrov two potatoes from Idaho, which apparently are the best potatoes in the States. And they were rather peculiar shaped. They were carrot-shaped. And the Russians puzzled what this meant, whether it was a carrot instead of a stick. But anyway, what happened when Kerry went to Sochi, he got a basket of Russian potatoes and a basket of tomatoes, which is a very peculiar present. So, you know, some, some of these uh, presents are certainly ex- extremely tacky and some are conventional, but there's certainly a lot of animals uh, moving in both directions. That was Donald Rayfield, Emeritus Professor at Queen Mary University of London, speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin on Friday's edition of The Globalist. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Recap. The show was produced by Marcus Hippie and edited by Weidong Lin. For now, from me, Ben Ryland, thanks very much for listening and happy holidays.